talking about today we might say was crucial. And many of you will realize that's a play on words because the word crucial or words like excruciating are from the Latin word crux, which means cross. So if something is crucial, it's paramount, it's important, it's central. To the Christian faith, nothing is more central than the cross of Christ. And indeed, there he suffered in an excruciating way. And there's hardly a stronger word in the English language to describe sufferings. No surprise that that word is linked to the cross. The cross is a macabre, desperate kind of symbol of human cruelty. And ultimately, it is the verdict of the world about your Savior and mine. When we talk about the death of Christ in a general sense, we say that fits us for heaven, and we rejoice that he gave his life for us. But I think the Bible's emphasis on the cross is that this is an instrument of torture, and that this was the world's verdict about Christ, and that when I'm linked with that cross, I am fenced off from the world. If the death of Christ fits me for heaven, the cross finishes me with the world. Now, the practical implications of that we're going to talk about tomorrow. Today, what I'd like to do is talk about, in the first hour, the many, many illusions, predictions, and promises about the cross that occur in our Old Testament. And I gave you a very ambitious outline. There's no way I'm going to get through all of that. And it really wasn't my intention to get through all of that. I gave it to you so that you could maybe take some of it farther yourselves. What I'd like to do, though, is kind of, I wouldn't say breeze through it, but move through it fairly quickly. And then as time allows toward the end of the meeting, I want to focus on two major passages and the central parts of those two passages. And those would be Genesis 22 and Isaiah 53. Very familiar places, but I hope to cone in on a way and, and give some emphasis that might be at least new to some of the younger ones. Where I'd like to begin reading, though, is in Genesis chapter 3. remarkable in the Old Testament that the means by which Christ would be executed, that is crucifixion, which was not known in the Old Testament era, it was not utilized by the Jews, it was not known in Canaan, it was not used in the Davidic kingdom, nevertheless was prophesied because there are three separate places in the Old Testament that explicitly tell us that Messiah would die a death of piercing. Perhaps the most familiar is Psalm 22. They pierced, now we get the details, my hands and my feet, again written a thousand years before Christ, before crucifixion, had even been invented. So we see that the power of predictive prophecy and of course the fact that God knows all things from the end and from the beginning. Zechariah also tells us in chapter 13, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And a third reference, not as well known because it isn't translated this way in the King James Version, we'll look at in Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. Now, those are three slightly different Hebrew words, but they all mean the same thing, a death by impaling, a death with nails, a death with spikes. However, many of the places that we're going to look at do not give us that type of detail, but they tell us that there will be a death. They tell us there will be a sacrifice. They'll tell us that someone, the Messiah, a perfect spotless person, will come and will die as a substitute on behalf of all. And we get the first inkling of that 
in what's called the protevangelium. That is maybe an English way of attempting that word. That may not be a word you've seen before, but it is common. If you read the commentaries, they all talk about it. But it simply means proto in Greek means first. Evangelium, that's the Latinized version of a Greek word for the gospel. Good news, right? Evangelism, good news, gospel. The first good news, the first expression of the gospel in our Bibles is in Genesis 3.15. But for context, let's read from verse 13. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let's reread verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you. Now he's talking to the serpent, but we are well aware that the serpent itself, as an animal creation, does not have any moral weight. It doesn't have the ability to choose. It doesn't have the power to deceive. Rather, it was used like Balaam's donkey, maybe as a mouthpiece, but not the mouthpiece of God, the mouthpiece of the devil. So clearly this is going beyond the snake, and it's talking about the serpent, as we call him, and he's called in Revelation, right? The devil. So you, the devil... And the woman, Eve, in this case. Now we're told about two other entities, and they spring from those two first ones. Your seed and her seed. Now my New King James Version here capitalizes the second seed, and I think rightly so. Obviously that's referring not just to progeny in general, but to the specific person who would come through Eve, and that's our Lord Jesus. Okay. Then we have a chiasm. We switch over. So now it, Satan isn't first, he's second. So it goes A, B, A, B, and now we get B, A. What are you saying? He, referring to the seed, capital S, shall bruise your, your Satan head. Now let's just tease this out a little bit. We have, of course, two lines that are being described here. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Let's deal with the seed of the serpent first. You see, I didn't think Satan had any progeny. Well, he doesn't have any offspring in the sense that we would understand it, but he certainly has children in a sense. Remember the parable of the tares, the children of the devil, right? Interspersed and often confused with the true king, children of the kingdom. As well, we think of the concept of sonship and we recognize that people who are like someone else, who follow someone else, can be said to be sons of that person because they have the same character. So we have here nothing less than a description of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil, of God's plans for his Messiah and his people and the devil's plans to thwart it through those who follow him. The big struggle, the entire story of the Bible is contained in this verse. In a sense, all of the rest of the Bible is a commentary on Genesis 3.15. We find that the one who would come from the seed of the woman, that is she himself being the seed of the woman, if we understand that the word seed can be taken either as singular or plural, and the apostle makes a great point to emphasize that that seed is singular when it's talking about Abraham's seed and refers explicitly and exclusively to Christ, I think we have the same idea here. We're being promised someone who would come and would take up the conflict with the devil. 
Now, the devil wins the first one. But that's just a skirmish. That's just the start. Eve and Adam, and he being the responsible party, they fall. The devil wins the second skirmish. Because Cain kills his brother Abel. But we're being told here that ultimately, at the end of the long, long war, Satan will be destroyed. And the way this is described is interesting because the wound to the Messiah is simply said to be a heel wound. We know it was utterly more than a heel wound. But again, this is looking at the last analysis. At the last analysis, Messiah will be standing strong, firm, and healthy. He will be in charge of the universe God has made. He will fulfill all that God had intended in Adam and through Adam to depict. He will be the son of man reigning over God's entire universe. But he will not be without a wound. Remember he says to Thomas, look at my hands, reach forward and feel my side. Don't be faithless but believing. We understand that Christ is a wounded man. All of us will have pristine bodies in heaven. Christ will be the only one bearing wounds in heaven. But the, the, the blow to Satan is a mortal blow. It's a head wound. And it's going to be his demise. It won't put him out of existence, of course, but it, what it means is he will be utterly subjugated and consigned to the lake of fire forever. And there, <clears throat> God's wrath upon him will be shown to be righteous forever and ever. So we have the whole story we have the whole story just given to us in picture form in these very familiar words. Now, I'm going to move forward on your outline, and we're not going to read all these sections. I just want to walk through this with you and make some comments as we go along. The cross in the Pentateuch is my first heading. For those of you who don't know what the Pentateuch is, I think you all do, but younger ones again, Penta means five. So, Tuch means scroll. So the first five scrolls of the Bible, what the Jewish people call the Torah, right? That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the, that's the Torah, and that, of course, is what we call the Pentateuch. Some of us do, anyway. So we're looking at these early books of the Bible and how they are going to depict the death of Christ and prophesy his cross. We begin with Genesis 22, where I'm not going to say a whole lot now because I want to come back to that toward the end of the meeting. But Genesis 22 has a number of first mentions. It's the first mention of son. It's the first mention of the word love. It's the first mention of the word test in the, New, in the Old Testament. So we're getting some new ideas coming in when Abraham is being challenged by the Lord to show the reality of his faith by offering his only Isaac on the altar as a sacrifice of worship to God. There are two major pictures that come out of that. Number one is the sacrifice of a willing son. Remember, the Jewish people call Genesis 22 the Akedah. And the Akedah in Hebrew means the binding of Isaac. Isaac, to them, one of the great graces of the chapter is that the son, a you know, obviously a strong young man, with a very old father, allows his father to bind him to the altar. To them, that's significant. And I think it is to us as well. The willing sacrifice of the son. But another key concept is also woven into Genesis 22, and that is the substitute of a sacrifice, or a substitutionary sacrifice. Because it's a double type, isn't it? Initially, we see the father and the son in the offering of the son. Then the type scene, we might call it shifts. And we see now a different story, but an equally precious one to us, 
And that is that the ram now stands for Christ. And Isaac is now the sinner. And the ram dies in the stead of the son, Isaac. We'll say more about that later. But I think that's one of our most complete and wonderful pictures of the cross in the Old Testament. How could we not pass by Exodus? Uh, We would not pass by Exodus chapter 12 and the idea of the lamb and of the Passover lamb being sacrificed for the people. God brings a number of interesting points out about his son through the picture of the lamb. First of all, the fact that the people of Egypt are, are in Egypt, rather, in bondage. They're chattel slaves to this cruel taskmaster and specifically to Pharaoh, who is obviously a metaphor for the devil again. And in that bondage, they're helpless. But God comes in to rescue. He sees their problem and he gives them the solution. He feels their pain and he comes to provide a sacrifice and a savior. That sacrifice is a lamb. That lamb is chosen and it must be flawless. He's a lamb without blemish and without spot. Later on, when he's sacrificed, it's important that he be inspected. His head, his legs, and his entrails, we might say, or the inner parts. And we won't go into all that we could say about Christ in terms of his head and his hands and feet, his movements and his affections, except to say that. These are all very interesting pictures. This lamb is scrutinized from the 10th to the 14th day. This lamb is killed on the Passover night. Its blood has to be applied, reminding us that the death of Christ by itself, as wonderful as that might be, only becomes a blessing to me and to you when we apply the blood to ourselves, when we accept it by faith, when we are sheltered by it. And being sheltered by the blood of Christ is the most great, is the greatest shelter you could possibly have. There's no way that anyone could be destroyed because the very God himself who was sending his angel to wreak vengeance on the people who were in disobedience to him also was the one who hovered over the door and indeed covered the entire house wherever there was blood. And if God be for us, who can be against us, right? We're sheltered by the blood of Christ in Exodus chapter 12. In the Levitical offerings, which come in the next book, again, all subjects unto themselves, but we're going to extract some more principles as we look forward to the cross of Christ. We have this system of so-called sweet-smelling and not-so-sweet-smelling, okay? And, 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 And we call it expiatory sacrifices, okay? So let's talk about this for a minute. The sweet-smelling sacrifices were voluntarily offered. They are the burnt offering, the meal offering, and the peace offering. When a person came and offered those offerings, there was a transference of the value of those offerings to that person by faith. Parts of those offerings were burned, and they were burned inside the tabernacle, and the idea was more of an incense-type burning. Um, It was not necessarily... Let's put it this way, it's, it is a, it's a, a hot fire for sure. The, burnt, the, the brazen altar was a very hot place. The blood splashed against it would have sizzled up. It would, be a, it would be quite a burning. But it's not the same word as the burning of the non-sweet savor offerings, which I'll get to in a moment. Okay? So again, a voluntary offering, an act of worship, the value of the animal was seen to be something that could be transferred to the offerer, and the offerer was blessed. On the other hand, there are two other offerings, the sin and the trespass offering. And these are not sweet-smelling savers. These are burned 
in a large, we might call it holocaust, and that is the Greek word in the Septuagint for this burning, outside the camp. They are not voluntary. They are compulsory. In this case, there's no value from the animal being brought to the offerer, but rather the offerer's sins are being transferred to the animal. And if that isn't clear in general, it is clear in Leviticus 16, where the single sin offering of two parts. Specifically, we are told of the scapegoat that he places both hands on the head of the animal and all the iniquities and transgressions and sins of the people are transferred to that goat. Again, a clear picture of substitution. And so these are two different ways of looking at the death of Christ. There's the death of Christ in the burnt offering, which is his devotion to God. God got everything out of that sacrifice. The primary person to whom Christ was offering himself was to the Father, through the eternal spirit. And God received that as a sign of devotion. So the burnt offering tells us of devotion, totally sold out for God. When Paul says, present your bodies a living sacrifice in Romans 12, he's saying, be a burnt offering for God. Now, you can't be an, a burnt offering like Christ was on the cross, but you can partake of the same spirit by being willing to be fully devoted to the Lord. Of that offering, God says, all the offering is mine, all of it. So we know that this is the God word offering, and we're so thankful that the Lord Jesus was obedient to his Father, first and foremost. When you get to the meal offering, of course, you have a bloodless offering, but one that was always offered with a blood offering. And the meal offering, because of the fineness of the flour and the quality of the crop that they were presenting, tells us of the evenness, fineness, perfection, and <coughs> wonderful holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The meal offering is said to be most holy. Why is it said to be most holy? Because... It is in the manhood of Christ, it is in the life of Christ that some heretics might assign some false motives or wrong actions. The offerings tell us no, that the meal offering representing the perfect life of Christ is perfectly flawless and sinless, no sin in it. It is most holy. Of that offering, God says, all the frankincense is mine. Now, there are people who could partake of some of that, Typically, a memorial portion is burned, and the rest can be eaten by the priests, right? So there is something for God, and there's something for man. But God says, regarding the frankincense, it's all mine. All mine. And what is he saying? He's saying there's something in the offering of Christ that only I appreciate. I can tell my people they can enter into it a little bit. But if you want to know who really understands what happened at Calvary, I, the Father, do. All of that frankincense is mine. When it comes to the next offering, the peace offering, this is a celebratory offering. This is a wonderful offering because everybody partakes of it. God gets his portion. The priest gets his portion. The priest's family gets their portion. The offerer gets some. And the offerer's family, to boot. So everybody's at the table together. And indeed, this is a fellowship offering. It's often referred to as that because everybody's at the table together. Remember the table in the Bible, and we all wish we had more dinner tables like in the old days, right? Instead of being all scattered around with our different schedules, the Bible is very strongly in favor of family dinners. It's in favor of the table in the wilderness. It's in favor of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. All of these being different symbols and different dispensations, but they all have the common thread 
of being a sharing of something that everyone enjoys. And so in the peace offering, the fellowship offering, we have everyone being blessed by the sacrifice of Christ. But God says there's something in that that's all mine. All the fat is mine. Don't you eat it. The fat is mine. And why does God want the fat? Because uh, despite what we might think about fat, ancient peoples did not mind fat. They liked fat animals because fat meant to, not, not necessarily obese animals, but healthy animals with the normal distribution of fat. That was the energy, the quality, the health of the animal. And so when God says, all the fat is mine, he's saying that all of the qualities that I see in that, in a sense, are for my eye alone. I appreciate them. Then we get to the sin and the trespass offering. And here we have some more alls. The sin offering was offered in order that it might depict for us the fact that Christ was going to be condemned on a cross, die a death that would be the penal consequence of sin, yes, but would also destroy the sinner. Now let me explain what I mean by that. You have sins, that's the fruit. But we all know that fruit must come from somewhere, a stalk, and that stalk ultimately comes from a root of a tree that can only bring forth that kind of fruit. So the reason we're sinners is because we're that's already said it backwards. The reason we sin is because we're sinners. We hear it, we preach this in the gospel, rightly so, right? Uh, if I take all the apples off my apple tree and wait and hope something else will ever come out of that tree, as soon as spring comes and they blossom, we'll get apple blossoms and we'll get more apples because that's an apple tree, right? That's what it produces. We're sinners. We produce sins. Those sins need to be paid for. There are consequences. There's a price to be paid. That price was paid at the cross. But if God paid the price of all of our sins and we were still left sinners, what good would that be? The sin offering tells us that there is the need to condemn sin in the flesh. We're going to get to this a little bit in the next meeting. It deals with what I am, a sinner. Not with what I do. It deals with what I am as a sinner. And at the cross, I was crucified with Christ. My old self, the sinning self, the self that was in Adam, the self that could do nothing but sin, was destroyed on that cross. And what came out of the grave when Christ rose from the dead was a new life in union with him. A new creation in Christ Jesus. Still, I have to say, just to be clear and to be frank with the situation we find ourselves in, still living in a body of mortal flesh and not fully redeemed so that there are desires in my flesh that are not holy and that are a constant struggle in my Christian life. But my soul and my spirit, which may leave my body if I happen to expire while I'm preaching here, which I hope doesn't happen for your sakes because it would create a quite a scene, uh, we go right to heaven. No further improvement needed, right? They're ready right now. And this body would be put away somewhere to wait the resurrection day when it finally too will be redeemed and then there will be no sin. There will be no possibility of sin. I will be as holy as the one who made me holy. The sin offering is the solution to who I am. God says, all the blood is mine. All of it. Now, the blood is always all for God, but this is the emphasis that's given in Leviticus. All the blood, it's mine. Another thing God says about the sin offering, it is most holy. And where did we see that before? We saw it with the meal offering. People might assign sin to the humanity of Christ. 
People might assign sin to Christ when he was on the cross. And say he wasn't only bearing sinner, a sin, he was, he, was, he was a sinner. Well, the offerings do the preemptive strike on both of those. And they show that those are both impossible. In his life, most holy, meal offering. In his death, most holy, sin offering. Right? And so, while he bore our sins sympathetically in his life, Matthew tells us that in chapter 8. Sorry, Matthew tells us he bore our, bore our sicknesses in his life. He was very sympathetic to those who were sick. He helped them, and he, of course, healed them. And a remarkable surge of health went through the entire area of Palestine when he was there, like there was nobody left with a physical problem. Uh, wherever he went, he healed the multitudes, even the shadow, even touching his garment. So very, very sympathetic toward those who were suffering sicknesses. But his body was never touched by disease. Similarly at the cross, he bore our sins, not sympathetically. He may have been sympathetic, but that's not the point. He bore our sins sacrificially, and his body was impervious to sin. Impervious to disease as he bore our sicknesses, impervious to sin as he bore our sins. Now, if that's the sin offering, what about the last one, the trespass offering? The trespass offering deals with sins. It deals with the wrongs that I have done to others, but first of all, the wrong I have done to God. It demands something called restitution, all right? Repayment. And that repayment must exceed the amount that was actually lost, whether it be through theft or some other negligence. So that when the restitution is made, 20% more is added, a bonus, okay? And in this case, all the price is paid. And so not only does Christ deal with who I am, but of course in his wonderful death on the cross, he paid all my debts and he set me free. So that's a, a, a brief spin through the offerings. Leviticus 16, we've already alluded to the fact that there's a sin offering there. Here we get the concept of propitiation brought in. And these days people tell us we need to get rid of these big words because nobody understands them. Well, I'm sure nobody does understand them unless they're taught, right? And that's what we're supposed to be standing up here doing is unpacking these terms. But don't get rid of the terms. The terms are crucial, okay? Propitiation is the fact that the Lord God of heaven, against whom sin had been uh, committed, whose universe was besmirched and apparently ruined by this sin, needs to have his rights fully redressed and needs to be fully satisfied that everything that sin had done has been fully compensated and that its root has been eliminated. So, when Christ offers himself without spot to God, we see that first goat going into the holy place in Leviticus 16. What is he doing? Is he forgiving people's sins at the moment? No, he's cleansing the tabernacle structure and its environs. He's making the place holy. He's going in and offering to God once upon, seven times before the mercy seat, the sacrificial blood of the sin offering. What's he doing? He's propitiating God. Now, God isn't seen as some sort of ogre who's like really, really mad and needs to be you know, massaged by, by some priest coming in and saying, oh, calm down and uh, you know, we'll, we'll pay this price and if you'll just uh, re relax a little bit... <clears throat> uh, Things can be worked out here, right? That's not the idea. 
God is angry clearly with sin. I don't want to take that away. But who's the one who propitiates God? God himself. God initiated this. God sent his son to accomplish this. The son is not talking the father into anything. The father sent the son to do the work. It's the father's origin, the idea that this work of propitiation would be done so that God could satisfy himself. And he satisfies himself by the offering of his son, so it's extremely costly to him personally. But as a result of the cross, all of God's universe, seen in that microcosm of the tabernacle, is cleansed. Everything is made right, everything is made holy, except not just for a year, but permanently, because we're talking about the real deal with Christ, not just the picture. The other goat that goes into the wilderness is bearing sins. We've already discussed that. Now, this is a different word. We call this expiation. This is not the satisfying of a God who has been wronged so that God is fully satisfied and thrilled with what the perfect sacrifice has brought to him to, to redress all that sin had taken from him. Rather, this second goat is taking our sins away. God says, I'm going to cast all their sins behind my back. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. And other great places, I blotted out their transgressions as a thick cloud, Isaiah 44. So throughout the Old Testament, with this idea of God removing the sins of his people. And again, that was accomplished at the cross, and it's depicted by that goat taken out into the wilderness. There's a poem by Isaac Ewan, uh, whom I, I was able to meet, actually, when I was in Scotland in 88. Um, may not know him too well or have heard of him, but he's got some amazing poetry about a number of great Old Testament themes. I've always liked his poem about Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement and what we call the scapegoat. He said, I saw a goat with heavy head drooped low. Now remember, this goat was taken out into the wilderness and abandoned. The cross is an abandonment. Christ is abandoned on the cross, alone, dealing with the problem, our sin, that only he could deal with. I saw a goat with heavy head drooped low, with sunken eye, and worn, far-traveled feet in that sad land, alone, a living woe. I heard its hoarse, forsaken, piteous bleat, it pierced the moral universe on high. Upon eternal shores the echoes break. That lone, that loud, that lamentable cry. My God, my God, why didst thou me forsake? That's atonement. And this is depicted in beautiful terms in these Old Testament pictures. Now we're moving right along here. Um, I'm going to mention in numbers, just mention it. There are two heifers, uh, uh, the red heifer famously in Numbers 19. The heifer comes back in the river valley in Deuteronomy 21. And many people think that if you have to have a clear picture of the cross in each of the first five books, that the winner in Deuteronomy must be chapter 21 with the heifer in the, quote, rough valley, as the King James says. But it means a, a valley of flowing rivers. So there was a river flowing through that valley. And again, these are the idea of purification coming for God's people through the cross. Perhaps we'll have something more we can say about that tomorrow. I personally think Deuteronomy 34 is also a good picture of the death of Christ in the death of Moses. 
Now, Moses was not perfect. Moses is not uh, a fully perfect type of Christ because he was not allowed to enter into the promised land because of his own disobedience. But still, there are parallels, and I think that they are interesting. So I wrote down here, the death of Moses, he clearly died for Israel's sake. And I gave you a reference in early in Deuteronomy 137 that suggests that. And he clearly died in obedience to the word of God. As we move through this outline, notice in, as we continue to go on to Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and the book of Samuel and Kings, the entire primary history. Remember, in your Bible, Genesis 1-1, all the way to the end of 2 Kings is one narrative. Then it stops. And what's the first word of the next book? Adam. <laughs> We're starting all over again. We have the secondary history. First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. Okay? Then we get into the, of course, the writings and then into the prophecies, the prophetic books. So as we move along, we expect to continue to see these pictures. Joshua 3, I think, is a great picture of the cross where the ark, again, depicting the person of Christ, gold and flawless wood melded together in one structure, enters into the cold waters of death, into the Jordan, so that the people of Israel might walk free in a promised land. Judges chapter 13, we see the angel of the Lord named Wonderful ascending in the smoke of an accepted sacrifice. Again, a clear picture to us of the cross. Ruth, the kinsman redeemer paying the price at the gate. I'm going to say absolutely nothing more about that because I'm going to talk about redemption a little bit in the next meeting, all right? But just to, just to, just to cite it at this point. First Samuel 17, how could we miss the story of the young brave warrior in the valley of Elah slaying the tyrant alone? A picture of Christ going in to the cross and, of course, or using at the cross, defeating principalities and powers and making an open show of them, as Colossians 2 tells us, right? What about the Psalms and the prophets? Well, again, I'm going to save the last 15 minutes. Let me just mention this. I brought some information in here that is very precious to us in our history as those who are good C.H. McIntosh and F.W. Grant readers. And many times, this is for the young people, people say Psalm 22, Psalm 16, you know, these, this is the Psalm of the meal offering. You say, that's wonderful. Where did you read that? Uh, how, why is it the Psalm of the meal offering? And my, my uh, ESV study Bible doesn't say that. <clears throat> my, even, even my good friend um, William McDonald doesn't say that. Well, maybe William might, actually, because William's trained in the same school. But my point here is, um, I think these are legitimate. I think there's a reason for them, and they require a little bit of digging. So what I did is I said, Psalm 16 traditionally is thought to be the Psalm of the meal offering. And I gave you a verse that kind of supports that, talking about the flawlessness of Christ's devotion to God in his life. Psalm 22 clearly is the sin offering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 40 is the burnt offering. Why? Because he's devoting his whole life to God. I come to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. It's a total devotion to God. Psalm 69 takes the title, the Psalm of the Trespass Offering, because of that great phrase in the middle of it, then I restored that which I took not away. So it's full restoration by the one who was willing to pay a price and able to do so. And I have two winners for the peace offering. Okay, um, Most people say Psalm 118. I personally like Psalm 85 too, so I gave you both of them as a bonus. All right, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. 
perhaps the middle verse in the Bible, some people say, I think that might be right. Don't quote me on that. But it's, it's definitely a precious central, central verse in the Psalms, telling us of complete reconciliation. Now, in the prophets, we have the suffering servant. We want to talk about that a little bit. And I've already alluded to that passage in Zechariah chapter 12, where he is the pierced Messiah, and chapter 13, the smitten shepherd. Earlier I said the piercing of Christ is described in Zechariah 13. That's not correct. It's 12. 13 is the smitten shepherd. Now, let's spend just the last few minutes of this meeting coning in a little bit on a couple of passages. I want you to turn with me to Genesis 22. familiar with this chapter, and I don't really want to read the whole chapter, just a few things I want to point out. Now, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Ten times in this chapter, we have the word son. And as I mentioned, this is the first mention of the word love, the first mention of a burnt offering, the first mention of the word test. It is not the first mention of the word son. If I said that before, that uh, clearly has been mentioned in other contexts before this. But the emphasis on the word son and father is striking. We're going to see that a little bit later. Now, God is asking Abraham basically to enter into something that he himself feels as the eternal timeless one. And specifically, as we would perceive it, would feel at the cross. Because don't forget that the offering of the son was as painful to the father as the, as the giving of the son's own life was to himself. Putting it differently, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. All three members of the Godhead in their proper role participate in our salvation. Only the son bears the sin, so we don't confuse the roles of the Godhead. But I believe all of the Godhead enters into the pain of self-sacrifice. There are theologians that tell us that God can't feel pain, that he doesn't suffer. Well, God is never subject to suffering in the way that we would be, never uh, reactively. He's never able to be manipulated. But God may suffer if he chooses to suffer. God may be happy and suffering at the same time. I mean, he's an infinite being. These are things that are hard for our minds to grasp. But the very idea of the sacrifice suffering on the cross being both God and man is essential. It's important for us to understand that there was a pain in the father's heart as he gave his son, just as there was obviously pain for the son as the one who sacrificed himself. God wants something called uh, sympathy. I don't know if you're one of those folks who likes to distinguish between empathy and sympathy, but I'm talking about the real meaning of sympathy here, where it's something you can relate to because you've gone through it. Just a, a quick uh, but vivid thing that came to mind today when I was thinking about this. My brother and sister-in-law lost their six-year-old child. She died of a medical complication. And so I was with them and went into the funeral parlor for the first time and saw that little form there, six-year-old girl, and you know all the difficulties of that. And you say, I try to say the right thing, and you try to be there, and you just, that's what all, all you can do. 
But then the door opened not too long after that. And a couple named Don and Chris Venema came in who had lost a six-year-old girl, same age, a few years before. All of us drew back because that couple was able to provide sympathy. They'd been through it. They knew what, they knew what it was like. We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, right? That's the general point, but in all points was tested like as we are, yet without sin. My point here is that God is actually asking Abraham to come into the counsels of his own heart and to share his own pain at giving his son. Now, I want to cone in on some verses here and then we'll spend a little time with Isaiah 53. Um, I actually have this printed out for, to help me. To help I don't use all the notes I brought up here. I'm not sure they brought them up here. But anyway, uh, let me say something general. There are four C's in this chapter. S-E-E. God either sees or he sees to it. You say, what are you talking about? Uh, it's very important. For, this is very important to get this in the chapter. I want you to see the four C's. The first thing that is seen is the place of sacrifice. He lifted up his eyes and saw the place of far off. Okay, that's ch- verse number four. Now, verse number four is talking about regular seeing with the eyes, and that's fine. That's what that verb can mean. So the first thing that is seen is this place of sacrifice. What's the second thing that is seen? The second thing is seen in verse eight. My son, God will see for himself a lamb. It says here, provide for himself, because we're trying to work with the translation, because we don't have the same flexibility in this word see in English as the Hebrew does. But he's saying God will see, see to it. So we understand that this word can mean see, or it can mean see to it. It can mean to observe something, or it can mean to bring it to pass, right? And it's very, that cliche in English, see to it, works perfectly. So the first thing that is seen, the place of sacrifice. The second thing that is seen is the lamb. The third thing that is seen, verse 13, is the ram. And the fourth thing that is seen is that God will provide himself. So let me run that by you very quickly. Abraham sees the place afar off. God sees to it that there's a lamb. Abraham looks again. The second look, he sees a ram caught in a thicket. And then God says, I'm going to see to it that I will provide a sacrifice on this site. In the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. It will be seen. That's the ambiguity there. It will be seen. It will be provided. They mean the same thing. I'm going to bring... God says that I will provide myself a sacrifice on this place. Now look at verses numbers uh, verse uh, 22, chapter 22 obviously is where we are, verses 6 through 9. This is a perfect chiasm. It is the central funnel in the chapter and it's bringing us to the crucial statement in the entire chapter which is, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? That question receives as a way, uh, we might call it literary structure here, it receives the greatest emphasis. So I'm going to show you how this works. Look at verse numbers 22a. You have three words. Wood, Isaac, and knife. Now drop your eye down to verse number 9 and 10. We skip the middle part. Yes, we did that on purpose because we're now at the outer bracket. So we have brackets starting with A and A prime, B, B prime, 
C. You walk down the ladder, you get to C, and then you reverse your direction and came back to where you started from. It's called a chiasm. You've heard of this before, right? An X shape. That's the word chi in Greek, or chi. Chiasm. So you say, what do you, why are you doing this? Because this is a very common Bible technique. You read Genesis 11, the story of Babel. It's a perfect chiasm. Every statement. You start at the end statement and the beginning statement, they match. Second from the beginning, second from the end matches. Third from the beginning, third from the end matches. Boom, 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 all the way till you get to the crux where God walks in, God comes down. Anyway, that's a different subject. This is a very simpler one. Okay. So clearly we have these three expressions, the wood, the fire, and the knife. And they're repeated. The wood, the knife, and I think fire, uh, or, or sun. Anyway, I'm spending more time than I would. I'm, I just want to show these the outer brackets. This is supposed to be noticed by us. We're supposed to say, okay, this is the same subject that we began with, we ended with. Now, if that isn't obvious and you're not convinced yet, I want you to look at 22.6. So they went both of them together. Now I want you to look at 22.8. So they went both of them together. It's exactly the same. So that's the next set of brackets. The other one emphasized the fire, God's judgment, the knife, the death that he would face, and the substitute, the son himself. These are repeated at the end. Next, he says, they went both of them together. They went both of them together. So that's a bracket. Now, this is fellowship. This is, this, is, this is a communion, a fellowship that is only shared between the Father and the Son. They are heading to the cross. They went both of them together. Then we get to the middle part. And here, this is full of pathos. This is, there's an exaggeration here of the relationship of Abraham to his, uh, his son. Father, son, son, father, father, son. Look, look at the redundancy. Isaac says to his father, we're now at the um, end of verse 20, beginning of verse 20, sorry, verse 7. Isaac says to his father, Father, Abraham says, sorry, no, let me just read it, slow down. Isaac says to his father, Abraham, Father. Now, why do you put two fathers in there? Because you're emphasizing a relationship. And he said, here am I, my son, was that necessary? No. Why did he put it in there? He's emphasizing the relationship. And then we have the central crux. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And then we back off, and these inner brackets are on that central statement. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the word father is twice, and the word son is twice in that short sentence. What are we learning from this? We're learning that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, that the Father and the Son together went to the place of Calvary. The Son is the victim, the Father bringing the vengeance down upon him. Now, it is true that the triune God was active. I'm going to stick my neck out here and do something that I think <clears throat> some of you may not disagree with. But personally, I have an issue with people who say, God forsook the man, Christ, on the cross, but the Father never forsook the Son. You've heard that. Maybe many of you preach it. Many of you believe it. I'm not here to, you know, to pick a fight. I'm saying I have problems with that. Now, the, the basis of that is the following. First of all, they say, he cried on the cross, my God, my God, not my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? And indeed, he did. But, of course, there was some constraint in that because he was quoting Psalm 22, which says, my God, my God. 
my issue is that <clears throat> while Christ, and we're going to talk about the person of Christ in the next meeting, is fully God and fully man, two distinct and intact natures that are not confused or melded, but coexist in one person, nevertheless has one consciousness. He speaks of himself as I, not as us. He never says, my divine nature does this, my human nature does that. There are attributes which only belong to his divine nature, to be sure. There are attributes that only belong to his human nature, that is to be sure as well. But they are in one person. Therefore, when you forsake Christ, you forsake the whole person. You cannot select part of him to forsake and accept the other. Uh, you say, well, you're just arguing purely from logic. Well, I am larger, uh, lar lar arguing from logic. That's how you argue. But I admit, logical arguments themselves do not always make good theology uh, because sometimes our reasoning could be flawed. I get that. One of my major contentions is this chapter. This is a chapter of a father and a son offering a sacrifice. God is clearly being depicted by Abraham. We see that through the dispensational teachings of these chapters. Enough said. I've actually used that most of my time. I want to only do one other thing with you and that's to move to Isaiah 53 and I want to show you why this is the central verse of the entire Old Testament. Isaiah, as I'm turning here and moving through this material a little more quickly, is a book of 66 chapters. Now that is kind of coincidental because the Bible is a book of 66 books. The 66 is a divine number. That's a full canon. The 66 chapters of Isaiah, I suggest, are a contrivance by humans, okay? Because the Jews never divided it that way. But nevertheless, it's very interesting and very convenient. I think it's on purpose. I don't know who was behind all this. But the first 40 chapters, 39 chapters, excuse me, are equal in number to the Old Testament books. And the last 27 equal in number to the New Testament books. And the New Testament book, beginning in, verse, in chapter 40, with John the Baptist, how could we mistake that? Right? The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, if you take those 27 chapters and you divide them into three nines, you understand that there are three major sections in this New Testament part of Isaiah. The first part is talking about the ultimate deliverance of the people from Babylonian captivity, but ultimately, ultimately from all of their enemies. And there's the, this enigmatic figure that arises, the servant of the Lord in chapter 42. There's a sense that Cyrus is even the servant of the Lord in one respect, but it becomes very clear in this first nine chapters that the servant of the Lord is going to be the Messiah who is going to come. Chapters 42 and 49 and 50 tell us about his suitability. Behold my servant. They tell us about the fact that he will have a great and difficult task to do and that he will suffer in that task. So we're prepared for all of this in the first nine chapters. Now, if we skip the middle nine chapters and we go to the final nine chapters, which is what, 58 or 50, whatever, I get to the math, through 66, right? Now we're into the millennial scene, primarily. We're into Israel's future, all the blessing, all the wonderful things God has in store from his people, prepared from the foundation of the world for these earthly people, the Jewish people. Beyond that, we certainly see promises of eternal life and of heaven for all of God's people, all the people of faith, including us. What about the middle nine? That's the crux. Back to the word crux for a minute. This is how the whole thing works. If the first, 40 first 39 chapters are to find their fulfillment in the last 27, and if the last 27 tell us that there's going to be deliverance from captivity and millennial blessing, how is this going to come about? 
through the self-sacrifice of the Messiah. So then you get into the middle nine chapters. Now the middle nine chapters, I don't have the time to go through all of this, can be brought, of course, to the central three. And the central three can be brought to the central one. So Isaiah 53 is the central three of the central nine of the 27 books of the New Testament part of this prophecy. You say it's confusing. Well, don't be confused. I want you to dwell on this for a moment. You say, why is this verse stuck in the middle of nowhere at the tail end of Isaiah if it's such an important book, if it's such an important verse? Because you're not analyzing the book as the Jewish person would. They're into chiasms. They're into structure like this. And they're seeing that we're being funneled. The whole Old Testament, indeed, is bringing us to Isaiah. And Isaiah is funneling us down to one verse. So you say of the verse verses that we have in Isaiah 53, which, by the way, include the last three of 52, right? Let's remind ourselves of a couple of key verses here. Isaiah 52, verse 13, is where the central chapter of the central three of the central nine of the 27 occurs. Okay, you with me? Behold my servant. It's the fourth and final servant song. This is going to tell us the full-orbed story of the self-sacrifice of the servant for his people. My servant shall deal prudently. I won't drag you through this, but there's another chiasm here. This first section and the last section of 53 match. There are commonalities. There's the, uh, the glorification after suffering. And I, I won't go into that right now, but just take my word for it, okay? Then we get into chapter 53, and we have another bracket. We have the first three and the second. Let me actually... Um, uh, don't have time. <clears throat> take my word for it. You can get this from me later. I can. Um, I have this all outlined. It's all the numbers. All the, it, 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 we're, this, is, this is not forced fit. This, this is very, very deliberate. Because of the interest of time, though, I'm going to funnel down to what I'm really going The central three of these 12, of the central three chapters of the central nine of the 27. Brackets. Direction points. This way. You, you, you follow this down. Okay? You're being brought into a narrower and narrower channel. You're being, as I said earlier, funneled. Okay? Where are you being brought to? You are being brought to the most important verse in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 and 5. Let's look what this, what this is doing. The first three verses of Isaiah 53 tell us of the rejection. He's despised and rejected. After we get to this, through the verses 4, 5, uh, 4, 5 and 6, we're given two others. He is, uh, we're given his sufferings at the hands of men. We're given uh, the details of his burial. Um, he has borne our griefs and, I'm sorry, we're going to, I'm making a royal mess of this because I'm over time. Stop, stop. I'm stopping assaulting myself. Stop, okay. Stop. I want you to look at Isaiah 53, 4, 5, and 6. And this is, could have been done so much better. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse number six, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I skipped five because my whole purpose in the last five to ten minutes was to get you to this point. And since we're there, maybe I can feel that I've actually done my job. The entire book has funneled us into this verse. 
And it is a, ver a verse of substitution. It is a verse of, su of suffering. It is a verse that redresses all of sin in its various shades. And it is the great promise that the cross of Christ was going to be for the salvation of his people. He was wounded. And I pointed out that that word can be translated pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment required for our peace was laid upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Sin, transgression, all that we cost God, all that we owe God because of the debts that we have incurred from our actions. Iniquities, that's the bent, twisted, evil part in me that produces those transgressions. What about the next word? Peace? The wicked are like the troubled sea that cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. I'm in turmoil. I have no rest. I have no peace. Because sin has ruined me. And finally, leprosy. Finally, disease. Completely ruining me from the head to the foot, as Isaiah has already mentioned in chapter 1. Christ is the great answer for all of those. Since I went over a few minutes, so I won't elaborate further. <clears throat> what have we accomplished in this first meeting? We've done a panorama of many Old Testament pictures and tried to get some devotional and theological points thrown in in the mix. I've spent some time on two of them. And if I could rewind the clock, I would do it over again, but you'll forgive me, right? <laughs> okay, I promise I wouldn't do this to you again. Um, I was trying to show you how the structures of these chapters, just going into it deeply, perhaps more deeply than we normally would in a meeting, are very much contrivances of the Holy Spirit to bring some very strong emphases to our minds. Number one, the father-son relationship and the promise of a lamb at Mount Moriah in 22. And in Isaiah 53, the entire structure of this gospel prophecy bringing us to a central verse that tells us of a substitute who would deal with all the issues of our sin and bring us in perfect health and wholeness back to the Father.